0: A couple of scriptures here. I and mean, I want to start in Hebrews. And if you want to remain in this uh, state of worship, you can bow your heads and close your eyes if you want. And you need to imagine what's happening in this moment. Um, it's pretty aggressive. Hebrews 12 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross disregarding its shame and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of god consider him who endured such hostility against himself for us sinners so that you and i may not grow weary or lose heart and then philippians 3:10 and 11 It's hard to read this section of scripture knowing so much behind it, but this is for us. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. If somehow we may obtain this resurrection from the dead, Father, we read these words. And uh, um, it's daunting to think about obtaining your likeness through suffering. My God, we desire to know you, and to know you more, and who you are. And so lead us, regardless of the path, the direction we commit to follow, to be like you. In your name and everyone said, "Amen." You guys can have a seat. You know, it's uh, it's pretty amazing to be surrounded by so many amazing people, by you guys, um, the talent. And the gifts and the spirit that you bring is, is, is so encouraging. There is a group of people that came here for homecoming that are, are hurting out there in the church world. And they just love being around you. And the spirit and your energy encourage so many people. You need to know that. It's also pretty amazing that we get to be around some really cool people. And this morning, one of those really gifted, cool people, Dr. Charles Bressler, is going to speak to us. And uh, um, this is a great opportunity to grab out your pen and your paper and your phone and take some notes. Um, Because uh, what he has to say is for us right now, Dr. Bressler.
1: I feel in part that we can leave right now with the powerful words in which we sang and the powerful scripture. So please bow with me in prayer. Father, the book of James tells us that if we draw nigh to you, you have promised to draw nigh to us. Here we are. Take us as we are. Mold us and shape us into the image of your son. And by the power of your spirit, will you use the next 30 minutes change our hearts to shape us just a little bit closer into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and we are asking for something we cannot do in our own power but you must do and it's in the name of your beloved son we pray the Lord Jesus Christ amen oh what great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God And that is who we are. You are God's children. You are his beloveds. You are his sons and daughters. You are a royal priesthood. You are a chosen people. But, a 20th century Christian apologist has these words to say to us today. We are actually at the present moment, creatures to some great extent who are a horror to God and a horror to ourselves. And the holiest amongst us knows that to be a fact." The author of that quote is C.S. Lewis, poet, dramatist, essayist, Christian apologist, an author of the beloved Narnia Chronicles. When we hear that quote, we are a horror to God in some respects, immediately I think that I am a conundrum to God. My guardian angel is thoroughly perplexed. What I say, what I do. I say that the Lord Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. You do too. I say that I believe the Bible. You do too. I say that I want to follow Christ in all that I am and want to do, and you say that too. But then I know me, and you know you, and you know, and I think Lewis is right, in the depths of our hearts, we are horrors to ourselves because we are conundrums. We want to follow Christ and think of what we do, perhaps on a daily basis. We live existentially painful lives. We live lives often filled with anxiety, filled with tension, and filled with pain. And a lot of the pain, folks, we bring on ourselves, but not all. There is external pain that we just get hit with because we are we, because we're in certain families, because we have certain friends. Because life just happens, we get filled with pain and we get hit with two by fours of pain and we don't even know they're coming. C.S. Lewis was not immune to pain. When he was 10 years old, his mother dies a horribly painful death. Shortly thereafter, his father psychologically and emotionally abandons him and his brother. He sends Lewis to four public boarding schools. In one of those schools, the headmaster, if you didn't know your lessons or just because you looked at him across that day, he would beat you with a rod at any part of your body. Matter of fact, six months after Lewis asked his father to remove him from that school, the headmaster was placed in an insane asylum and was certifiably insane. Then Lewis becomes a professor at Oxford in 1925 and his last 10 years there were really rough, variety of reasons, perhaps his personality, perhaps there was jealousy at the publication of his books, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. But Lewis went into Great Depression those last 10 years. Then, in the 1950s, he marries. But the marriage lasted three years because his wife died a very painful, very painful death of bone cancer. So we hear Lewis at times crying out, God, do you care? Where in the world are you? For us, it would be like saying, God, I'm in Marion, Indiana. You must be in Paris because you're not here. Because I don't feel your presence. And it hurts like Al Jehu. And what are you up to? This was Lewis. And this is we, more frequently than we want to admit it. Around 1940, before Lewis was basically ostracized from the Oxford academic community, and before his wife dies, before he marries and then his wife dies, he writes a book entitled The Problem of Pain. And in The Problem of Pain, he articulates questions that you and I have asked, maybe not in the way Lewis asked them, but we ask these questions. Here's his thesis. If God is good, he would want to make all of his creatures happy. And if God is almighty, he he can do what he wishes, but his creatures aren't happy. Whoa, where does that leave us? that God is either not good, or God is either not almighty, or both. As I said, we probably haven't asked those questions that way, but we have screamed out, God, do you care? Where are you in the midst of this mental and physical pain that I'm going through? Now, Lewis had several mentors. G.K. Chesterton and George MacDonald, two of them. And when they were asked why pain in the world, they said, it's a mystery. And in part, they are correct. When we come to Christ, we are told we're going to have joy everlasting, and there's heaven. And we're going to have peace that passeth all understanding. And we've had that verse quoted to us, have we not? And then you think, I don't have any peace. Then we think, what's God up to? Because existentially, I'm not feeling it. Well, Lewis goes on to say, pain is part of being a Christian. When we're talking about the gospel, and when the Lord gives us favor, and through us, he leads people to himself, we usually only tell half of it. We talk about the joy and the peace and the contentment and all the rest of it, but you know, sitting in that chair, life sometimes sucks, Christian or not, and it hurts like all Jehu. Now what do we do? What do we say? We can say it's a mystery, as Chesterton and many others said, and that's true, but that's usually the general answer we give people. It's a mystery. Isn't that nice to say to them? Why would they want our worldview? I asked that question myself. Well, it is interesting if you look carefully at the New Testament. What does Jesus promise the 12 apostles? Yes, he promises them that they'll reign with him. But look carefully, he promises them suffering. He promises them it's going to be painful to look like the Lord Jesus Christ. How many times have you prayed and have I prayed, Lord, I want to be like your son? That is an extremely dangerous prayer to pray because the Father will take you up on that, and he will take me up on that, and then the pain will starts and Lewis knew that pain and Lewis says if we are to understand the pain in our lives if we understand the hurts we have to put it into God's story not Charles's story or Lisa's story or somebody else but God's story the big problem for you and me is we want to be the authors of our own lives Not a matter of fact, we don't simply want to be the authors of our own lives. We want to be the major protagonist. We want to have center role. We want all the peripatias, the ups and downs, and the denouements to center on us. Amen, brothers and sisters. And then there's God, who says, I'm going to write your story. You may not even be a minor character, never mind the major protagonist in my story, Oh, we all want to be Daniels and Ruths and all the rest of it, but the reality is, most of us will not. And we have to be content to be the people God has created us to be. And that's difficult, and I will look around you. You could always find somebody smarter, you could always find somebody better looking, you could always find the better athlete. It's like, whoa. And so Lewis says, to understand our pain, it involves something quite major, self-surrender on a daily basis. Wow. A daily basis. It means at some point during, this is Lewis speaking, sometime during the day, perhaps in the early morning, when I awake and when you awake, it means this body, Lewis calls us half-amphibians, we need to j- get on our knees and say, I'm not in charge. I don't know about you. God doesn't need a reminder that I'm not in charge. <laughs> I need a reminder that I'm not in charge. And Lewis says, to understand pain, we have to, it has to accompany self-surrender. Otherwise, it makes no sense, and there will be no purpose for pain. if. We don't have self-surrender. Matter of fact, Lewis goes on to say about this, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is God's megaphone that says, hey, you, you're trying to be the major protagonist again. I didn't call you to do that. Come back home. In other words, for Lewis, and I don't want to say this, but I happen to agree with him, pain is a necessary part to the Christian life. If you want to be like Christ, if you want to be, if you want to have this experience that when you finally stand before the Father, here's what I want to happen for you. Here's Zach. Here's the Lord. Here's the Father. The Father looks at Zach and he looks at the Lord. He looks at Zach again. He looks at the Lord. And then there's this 10 second pause in eternity. Kind of funny since there's no time. But he has this dramatic pause up there. And he finally says, I can't tell the difference between Zach My son, that's our goal. That's a mental image of what we want, but folks, it's going to hurt like our Jehu. We have to tell the entire gospel. The New Testament invites us to be with Christ, but there's pain unspeakable, and we have all suffered it. But we must put it into the context of self surrender. Lewis was a professor at Oxford. You see, they, actually, that's where he, those were his apartments. They're, that's called New Buildings, built in about 1758. And they still call them New Buildings. That's an old place over there. Next slide, please. Slide. Maybe not. Oh, yeah. There's the chapel. Lewis taught at Magdalen College, Oxford, for about 30 years. Next slide. Another part of New Buildings. Next one. He had a friend. You may recognize this friend. J.R.R. Tolkien. They love to talk. They love to talk about mythology. They love to talk about Norwegian mythology. And one night, September nineteenth, nineteen thirty-one, Lewis was in his rooms with J.R. Tolkien and another Oxford don named Hugo Dyson, and they started to talk. And they said, "Let's go for a walk." Next slide, please. On the east side of Modellin College is this wonderful walk that encompasses the school, and it's called Addison's Walk after a newspaper reporter, basically, of the 17th century. And so the three guys start walking, and Lewis at this time was a theist but not a Christian. For half of his life, folks, he basically was an atheist. Half of his life. 1929, he says he was at his bedside, And he finally had to admit that God was God, but he said coming to know that God was God was one of the most painful things of entire existence. He said he fought it all the way, coming to Christ. Sometimes we want to make it so darn simple, follow these four rules, but it doesn't follow those neat patterns for a lot of us, not for Lewis. He said he was the most reluctant theist this side of France. By the way, they all hated France. (laughs) The Brits, that is. So he's walking along with Tolkien and Dyson and they're talking about God and and, and Tolkien looks at Lewis and says, you know, Lewis, you don't have any... He called him Jack, by the way. He says, Jack, you don't have any trouble believing in redemption and blood sacrifice and resurrection when you think it's a myth, do you? And Lewis said, no. And Tolkien said, "The, the difference between those myths that you read and Christianity is that Christianity really happened. There was a Christ. It's not just a simple story. It's a real story. Well, Tolkien had five children. He had to go home. Tyson goes back to Lewis's rooms, and they talk to three o'clock in the morning. And in talking to three o'clock in the morning, Tyson leaves. And you can read in his spiritual autobiography that three days later, Lewis was in a sidecar with his brother. He never learned to drive. It was actually a motorcycle. He was in the sidecar. And Lewis writes, when he went to the zoo, on the way to the zoo, he wasn't a Christian. And when he arrived at the zoo and got out of the cart, he was. That's all you're going to find from that great mind about his salvation experience. That's it. You can look anywhere you want to. And he talks about, it was painful because he had to give up himself. He had to give up his desires. He had to say, you are God, I am not. Self-surrender. Yes, a lot of our pain is brought on by circumstances and people. But I am really convinced that most of it is brought on by ourselves. We bring it on because we say we're followers of Christ and yet we'll do as we will please for little pleasures. Coming to Christ and daily, daily following His will, says Flannery O'Connor, 20th century American writer, is really hard work. Somehow we as Christians give the opinion, you come to Christ, life is easy, we're not and we don't talk about the pain. And we don't talk about the struggle. Two examples from Lewis's canon, his stories, that I want to talk about today. One I will talk about. The other we'll see dramatized. The third book of the Narnia Chronicles, which I'm assuming some of you have read, is The Voyage of the Don Treader. There is this annoying little boy. <laughs> He's a very annoying little boy. His name is Eustace Scrub. He's repugnant. He's literally little. That's part of his problem. He says. His cousins are the Pevensey children. You know, Edmund and Susan and Lucy and Peter, and Edmund and Lucy are going to come to his house. Now he's really excited about coming to the, of their coming to his house. Not because he likes them, because he wants to bully them. And while we laugh at that, we've all been Eustaces at times. And Eustace is a Republican. I'm not making this up. He is a Republican. He is a conservative. He is a vegetarian. He is a pacifist. He is a teetotaler. And he is a non smoker. Wow, he could almost be Wesleyan. <laughs> now, Eustace likes to make fun of people. Oh, there's another major problem with Eustace. He loves science. Now, that's now my science friends, don't slam me right. He's extremely unimaginative. He hasn't read the right books. No, no, no. He's very into observation, and that's all. So Edmund and Lucy come to his house. They enter a room, and through sort of magic, I guess, the magic of Narnia, the three end up in Narnia. Where does Edmund end up? out of the ocean, swimming by a boat, and he feigns he can't swim, so they come and rescue him, put him on the boat, and he screams, I want to go to the British consulate. Now remember, he's in Narnia, all right? He doesn't believe he's in Narnia. He doesn't believe what God can do, what Aslan can do. So he starts fighting with everybody. He pulls Reepicheep's tail, the little mouse, and then Reepicheep takes his sword and starts bashing him over the head. All right? (laughs) And then... Finally, they, they put him aside. They sort of ignore Eustace, and they land at, at the Lonely Islands, and adventures happen, as you well know. Either you've seen the movie or read the book. In the lone Islands, everybody's captured by slave traders, except Eustace, because nobody wants him. <laughs> All right. Nobody wants Eustace, so they let him go. Well, the movie, the Disney movie, got it wrong, as it often does with these books. At the end, uh, King Caspian comes and saves the day. But if you remember the movie, Edmund comes trancing along, accidentally knocks over the, ca- the governor and kills him. Didn't happen in the book. They get on board a ship. They go away for a while, and they end up in a storm, and then they crash land on an island. Well, everybody's trying to put the ship back together again, and Eustace decides to go for a walk, not because he wants to walk, but because he's lazy. He goes for a walk, and he comes up to this big cave, and outside the cave is a dragon. And the dragon is dying. And Eustace watches this dragon die. Then he goes in the cave, and he finds gold and jewelry, mounds of it, And he takes off a golden bracelet, and he puts it on his hand, and then he falls asleep. Hours later, he wakes up, but he feels a bit funny. He doesn't know what's happened to him. Remember, this is a very unimaginative little boy. He goes outside. He sees the dead dragon. So what does he do? He eats half of it. Hmm. Then he decides to get a drink, and he goes to a pond of water, and he looks in, and he finds that he is a dragon. That's an astonishing fact. (laughs) Well, what does he do? Well, he decides to fly over Lucy and Eben and help, help. Lucy recognizes who it is. At first, they think it's an enemy, but Lucy recognizes who it is. And he lands, and she puts her little cordial on his leg and heals it just a little bit. And then he becomes a rather nice dragon. He starts helping everybody work. And then one night, he's by himself. Who comes to the scene but Aslan? And Aslan says, follow me. I'm going to heal you. I'm but first, I need to bathe you. Dragons probably aren't afraid of lions. Think of it. If you are a dragon, you could eat a lion. But Aslan was really afraid, excuse me, Edmund was really afraid of this lion because he was simply afraid. Before Aslan washes Eustace, he says to him, you have to take off your clothes. Well, Eustace looks, he goes, oh, I'm a reptile. I could shed. So three times, he starts trying to take off his clothes to shed his skin. And finally, finally, Aslan says, I have to help you. Now, the movie gets it horribly wrong. In the movie, you have Aslan taking his claws and he puts three claws into the sand and all of a sudden Eustace is a little boy again. That's not what happens in the book. What happens in the book, Eustace tells us later that when Aslan took out his paws and his claws, he goes and rips the skin off Eustace and Eustace says, it pierced me to the heart It was horribly painful, but there was pleasure in it, knowing I was getting rid of the skin. And finally, Aslan rips everything off. He picks Eustace up, throws him in the water, and Eustace comes out a boy. What a wonderful picture, folks, of us. We're living the good life. We want to do all things that are fine, but Jesus has to do the changing. We can't do it on our own, and it's going to be painful. 1944-1945, Lewis writes another book called The Great Divorce, and in it, he imaginatively says, what would happen if people from hell had a day trip to heaven, and when they get to heaven, they could stay there if they so choose, but they had to give up absolutely everything? Everything. And we meet angels or bright spirits who talk to these people from hell and say to them, if you want to stay, you can, but you must give up absolutely everything. We're going to watch as a bright spirit meets a ghost with a lizard on his shoulder. Now, folks, this lizard on the shoulder, Lewis tells us later on in the book, represents Lust not just sexual lust, lust, you can lust, lust after degrees, you can lust after pretzels, you can lust after a spouse. And we're going to listen as we see what happens, whether or not this bright spirit could convince the ghost to stay in heaven, but to give up his pleasures.
2: Yes, I'm off. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap that if he came along, he'd have to be quiet, which he insisted upon doing. But I just won't stop, and I realize his stuff won't do here, so I'd be better if I just left. Would you like me to make him quiet? Of course I would. Then I will kill him. Ah, keep back! You're burning me! Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. How do you think something so drastic is necessary? It is the only way. May I kill him? Well... That's a new question, and I'm quite open to considering it. But it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the time being, I was only thinking about silencing him. Because up here, well, it's so damned embarrassing. May I kill it? There's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. The gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll consider what you said. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you do it right now, but <coughs> I'm, not, I'm not feeling the best today, and it'd, it'd be silly to do it now. I'd have to be in good health for the operation. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Keep away! How can I let you kill, kill it? You'd tear me to pieces. It is not so. But you're hurting me now. I didn't say it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. I know. You think I'm a coward. But it isn't. I say, let me run back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come the first moment I can. But this moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You're taunting me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? Be better off if you just killed the damn thing without asking me before I knew. It'd be all over by now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I your permission?
3: Be careful. You can do what he says. You can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd only be a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. How could he? He's a cold, loveless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes. I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. Aren't they better than nothing? I admit, sometimes I've gone too far in the past, but I won't do it again, I promise. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say, quite innocent.
2: Have I your permission? I know it will kill me. It won't. But say it did. You're right. It'd be better to be dead than to live with this creature. So I may? Damn and blast you. Get on with it, can't you? Do what you like. Get it over. God help me. God help
0: me.
1: Ah! (laughs) God. The only character in the novel who chooses to stay in heaven is the ghost with the lizard on his shoulder. What a message for us. So frequently, we choose little pleasures. They could be academic. They could be sexual. They could be anything it is that takes us away from Christ. And here's Lewis's statement. If I had spiritual lenses to put on right now, on most of your shoulders, folks, I'm going to see a lizard. What's your lizard? What's your besetting sin that over and over and over you told God you wouldn't do and you will do it? Pain is necessary. Notice what what the bright spirit said to the ghost. I never said it wouldn't hurt. I told you it wouldn't kill you. Becoming like Christ is going to hurt. So my question to you right now, don't look at your neighbors. Don't think of your parents or siblings, but of yourself. Most of the time we inflict pain on ourselves because we say we're followers of Christ and we have lizards on our shoulders. But notice something. In that novel, the bright spirit had to ask permission. God's not going to override your will. That's not the kind of God we serve. He's going to say, do you want me to kill your lizard? And if you do, I will, and it will hurt, but I'll do it. I will free you. Sort of like the story I was told from one of our students from Sri Lanka about an elephant. When the elephants in Sri Lanka are babies, they put chains and cords around their feet, at least one of them, make it a taunt cord and the baby can't get away. Well, when the elephant becomes an adult, they'll put these very thin cords around one one leg of the elephant and tie it to nothing. This is an elephant. This is an elephant who could pull tons, and the elephant is stuck, right? There, because the things he can't or it can't move many of us are stuck with our besetting sins because we don't realize Christ has already freed us here's my admonition to you you could walk away right now with God's help it will hurt you may need to talk to somebody you may need to get counseling but you need to be able to say right now father I want my lizard off and i give you permission to kill my lizard it's going to hurt but i'm willing to do it so father this is your moment there are lizards all around us on our shoulders and sometimes dad we get rid of one lizard and the baby lizard seems to take its place as we mature And we have to come back to you and ask for self-surrender once again to your will. But you have already paid the price. We are free. That elephant is bound and didn't know. We are bound this morning by besetting sins, by lizards that claim they'll give us sweet dreams and sweet pleasures. And it's all false. And it takes us away from you. So as we leave... during the rest of this day, would you, would each one of us give you permission to kill the lizards? We have tried like Eustace and we are abominable failures. Hurt us in the way you need so we can look like your son. Some of us need to be told there are lizards on our shoulders. And if so, please tell us. Do, you, do what we cannot do for ourselves. Help us to walk away when that lizard dies and be free this moment. We love you. Perform that miracle in our lives today. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.